Good morning again. I think Paul was anticipating me saying good morning. It was the year 1942. Some of you remember it. Corey Ten Boom, a Dutch Christian woman, along with her family, began helping Jews escape persecution during World War II. They did this by providing a hiding place, which actually became the title of her book that she wrote that shared this experience. They provided a hiding place in their home for refugees, for Jews, and not only Jews alone, but any refugees uh, searching for protection from the persecution of the Nazis. However, in 1944, the Ten Boom family was betrayed and arrested by Nazis. Corey, her sister Betsy, and their father were taken to concentration camps. Corey and Betsy were imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp, where they endured harsh conditions and cruelty. Sadly, Betsy passed away due to the deplorable conditions of the camp. And after the war ended, Corey was released from the camp and returned to the Netherlands. In the years following her release, Corey traveled extensively, sharing her experiences and spreading a message of forgiveness and compassion. During one of her speaking engagements in Germany, she encountered a man who approached her after the event. And this is, in her own words, the account of that experience with this man that came up after her session. I saw him approaching me as he walked up to the speaker's platform. The man was ashen, his eyes full of shadows. Fraulein, he said, I must tell you something. I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, and then he reached out his hand, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. 
I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Many of you know this story of Corrie Ten Boom because this act of forgiving her sister's captor has become an enduring symbol of the power of forgiveness and the strength of her faith. It begs the question, would you be able to forgive someone that harmed you so, causing the death of your loved one? In the study of the parables of Jesus, we've now come to a parable where the theme is forgiveness. And we're not going to do every parable. Pastor Kyle won't let me. But we are, are going to look at some of these that we haven't talked about before. And this one is on forgiveness, and it begins with the need to understand forgiveness. Just like each person in this room, there comes a moment in life, there possibly came a moment in your life where you needed God's help to understand forgiveness. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 I would encourage you, please open your Bibles. It was so great this morning to hear the pages flipping, people having their Bibles, or even if you use a digital Bible. I use my digital Bible all the time. Uh, get out your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. I'll actually read it from my Bible here. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. We haven't gotten to the parable yet, but this passage, which opens, introduces the parable, begins with Peter wanting to understand forgiveness. And even misunderstanding forgiveness, which is seen through his question. He begins with a question. Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? So the word forgive means to release someone from legal or moral obligation or consequence. That's a very technical term for forgiveness. And he's asking about this because the rabbis in his day, the other teachers, there's Think of it like in our day, we have many churches and different preachers and different denominations and theologies. Even in Jesus' day, there were different teachers sharing different ideas, sometimes conflicting ideas. They contrasted each other. They didn't agree with one another. So Peter wanted to know, how many times must I forgive? And forgiveness is needed when somebody sins against you. So he says, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? The idea of forgiveness is required when someone sins against you. Now, some say forgiveness is releasing the right to get even. But in all the definition, forgiveness is releasing the person. And so we got to keep that in mind. Now, before we look at what forgiveness really is, which Jesus teaches in this passage, the parable highlights it so well, we need to begin with what forgiveness is not. And the reason is, before we even use the word forgiveness, Every person in this room has an idea of what forgiveness is. And do you think we all agree on what forgiveness is? No way. 
So we all have different ideas about forgiveness, so let's think about what forgiveness is not so we can frame it uh, biblically. The word for forgiveness, which means to release the person from legal or moral obligation or consequence, that idea is not the same idea as reconciliation. There is a word for reconciliation in the Bible. It is not forgiveness. So forgiveness is not reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness takes one. Reconciliation is when you restore a relationship to trust and mutual peace. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is also not giving the person your trust or letting them back into your life. Some people confuse forgiveness as, well, now i got to let them back in, but that's not true either. Forgiveness is not trusting someone, and it's not letting them back in as if the event never happened. Forgiveness is also not saying what they did was right or okay. Forgiveness is not affirming the action of the other person as if it doesn't matter. God hates evil and sin, and since it destroys people and costs them their souls, so should we. We should not think that injustice or evil or sin is not a big deal in order to forgive. That's not forgiveness. That's just bad theology. So forgiveness is not saying what a person did is right or okay. Forgiveness is also not avoiding or preventing justice. This is one question that comes up quite often. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he talks to them about suing other Christians, Christians suing others, and how wouldn't you rather be wronged in public and the world not see a divided church than to be made right? Like, lose that stuff. Sacrifice it so that the church is unified. Don't go against another brother or sister. And so some Christians have then kind of translated that over. Well, well, if I forgive someone, does that mean I have to never talk about it again and I can't go to court and I can't testify about something someone did and I have to pretend like it never happened? Well, that's not true either. That's not what forgiveness is in the Bible. It's not... In any story of forgiveness in the Bible, it's not forgiveness even for us. Why? Because preventing justice is the same as permitting evil in the Scripture. So forgiveness is not preventing justice. It's not avoiding it. it you can speak out. You can testify. You can witness against. You can say what's right. Because personal forgiveness is not the same thing as civil justice. It's different. And so forgiveness is not avoiding or preventing evil. And lastly, and this is most clear in this particular passage, forgiveness is not limited. The rabbis taught to forgive three times. In Jesus' day, if you were to ask the average rabbi, how, much, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister? They would say three times. So Peter's seven times was meant to sound generous. I mean, you could just see Peter with his persona, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister? Should it be seven times? You know, like, the rabbis say three. I know you, you're always a step ahead, going the extra mile. I'll double it plus one. Seven, which in Judaism is a great number. It's like this holistic whole number. It's like, how many times must I forgive? Seven times, right? That's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of implication the, the passage gives us. But Jesus corrects them. Because Peter is still limiting forgiveness. So Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Maybe your translation says 77 times. Whether it's 77 times or 490 times, the idea is forgive them as many times as required. 
If they sin against you 490 times in a day, forgive them. Which if any of you have kids, you've reached that, you know, you've been there. Forgive them. No, I'm just kidding. Our, our kids have to forgive us too. He's clearly saying that you must forgive and you have to re- forgive as often as is requested. There's no limit. And to illustrate this correct understanding, in order that Peter would not walk away and we, inspired by the truth, would not, for, not be ignorant of, he gives us a parable clearly, clearly making it so obvious to anyone that would hear this what forgiveness really is and what it looks like. So he uses this story, verse 23, for this reason. Now, when he begins for this reason, that's his way of saying, we've been talking about forgiveness, you forgive 70 times 70. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. So Jesus brings up this story. Okay, there's this master. He has servants. Two of the servants, or one of the servants is indebted to him, and he owes him 10,000 talents. Now, if you do any kind of Bible studies, there's two different kind of talents uh, in Jesus' day in the ancient world. This one we'll talk about is the one where a talent is worth a lot, kind of like the, the talents that were given to uh, the people, the, the five, the two, the one. So talents are worth a lot of money. This guy owed 10,000 talents. Just one talent is worth 6,000 days of work. Just one talent. That's 6,000 denarii. So one talent is worth 6,000 days of work. And now remember, this is not in America. So your average income is what we would consider low income low income. The average man's salary would be one denarii. It would take 6,000 of those to equal one talent. So 10,000 talents are worth about 200,000 years of the average income. You would have to work for 200,000 years in order to make 10,000 talents uh, worth. So the point is he could never pay his debt off ever. Now, I'm skipping toward the end of the parable for a second. At the end of the parable, it's clear that the master represents God and the servant to God. This is very clear in the end, and you'll see it once we get to the end. The point, and the reason why I bring that up is, the point here is this servant owed the master more than he could ever repay in thousands of lifetimes. Don't, don't get lost on that point. We owe God more than we could ever pay. We will never be able to pay off the debt. So back to the story. So he gives him this talent. The guy owes him 10000 Therefore, the debt he incurred required everything he had, even the selling of his wife and children, everything. He, he could not pay this back. Then verse 26. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Be patient with me. I will pay you back everything I owe you. Now, if you're listening, if you're Peter, if you're in this day, you know this guy can't pay him back 10,000 talents. That's impossible. But he begs him. He humbles himself and says, I, I want to give you everything that you deserve, everything I owe you. I want to give it to you. I'm willing to give it to you. Please be patient with me. 
I will, I will give you everything, but don't sell me and my wife and my children and everything I have. In, don't, don't sell it. Don't, don't sell me into slavery. That's not going to work. So be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. And those three words are going to be the three words that we use to learn what it looks like to extend forgiveness. Extending forgiveness is compassion, release, and forgiveness. Notice in verse 27, Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him. Now, I know there are a thousand, thousands of articles written on forgiveness. Thousands from all different philosophies, religions, groups of people, psychologists, counselors, everyone. There are so many different articles written on forgiveness, different acronyms, different steps for you to take, and all of them are valuable to articulate the human experience of how we understand forgiveness. You can learn things from them on how people think about forgiveness, but I must tell you as an elder and preacher of the word, if you want to know what forgiveness looks like, look here first. Look here. Look at God's word. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Dissect it. Study it. If you want to know what forgiveness really looks like, I just want to implore you, look at the examples in the scripture where Jesus says, this is forgiveness. This is what forgiveness looks like, which is how we're going to do it. In our gathering, we don't want to share good ideas. We want to share God's ideas. And so in the scripture, Jesus makes it plain, what does forgiveness really look like? It looks like step number one, compassion. Step number one is compassion. This, this is the word, I, I like to say this word in the original language because of the way it sounds, it's splagnizomai. Splagnid, yeah, isn't it fun? It's just fun to say. You guys want to try saying it? Splagnizomai. Splagnizomai. Right? Okay, you guys would be great Greek students. It's great. The reason why I love this word is it sounds weird to us, not just because it's a foreign word. Other foreign words sound weird. This word is the word for your guts. It's the word for your belly. And so in Jesus' day, the bowels, your guts, were the seat of emotion and pity. That's where you felt your emotion. It's not like today we say the, you know, in your head and your heart, you know, your head is where you knowledge, it's where you think, and your heart is how you feel. In Jesus' day, the heart was not the seat of your emotions, it was your belly. And, and you guys can understand this. If you've ever <clears throat> seen an injustice, uh, if you've ever seen something wrong done, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, my family and I were in Michigan. We are at a family camp. And the missionary speaker was from Ukraine. And at the beginning of the speaking, there, would, there was this video. All of a sudden, there's this live uh, interview video where a guy has a, uh, a bulletproof vest on and he's, he's speaking, I think in Russian, maybe he was speaking in English, I can't remember. He sounded like he was speaking in Russian the whole time. Anyway, he had this vest on and he's interviewing and then all of a sudden these bombs start going off and he goes and the camera's all shaking and it all is bad and then it pans to other views in Ukraine because of the war uh, in Ukraine with Russia and it shows all these Christians uh, hiding and sleeping in bathrooms, in public-type bathrooms. There's beds, little cots all made up. And they're in all these places because they're, they're, af- they're afraid of, you know, getting bombed. And they're in Ukraine. There's no one else for them to go. And so there's this, there's this video scene. And while I was watching it, all of a sudden, like, my stomach hurt. 
and I felt angry, and I felt mad, and it wasn't in my head, and it wasn't necessarily right here. I felt it right here. Compassion is in the belly. It's that, it's that angst. When you say, my stomach was just in knots when I saw this injustice and this pain and this persecution, it puts your stomach, it just makes you, we say the, we say the phrase, it makes you sick to your stomach. That is because this is the, the seed of your emotions. So, so splagnizomai, compassion, it's, it's, uh, it's your belly. And to have compassion means to have pity and feel sympathy. Those are the two English words we use to describe it, pity and sympathy. And pity is the feeling of sorrow for the misfortune of others, and sympathy is a feeling of sincere concern for someone who is experiencing something difficult or painful. In layman's terms, the way I define the word is just my paraphrase. Compassion, in my understanding, is it hurts me to see you hurt. When I see you hurting, it hurts me. I feel something in my belly. Um, I think it was five years ago, uh, one of my kids got sick. Uh, my second born, my son, Russell, he got sick. He was real little. And my wife's a nurse, so uh, we don't believe in going to the doctors uh, unless you're dead. Uh, but anyway, he's, he's sick, and uh, he's feeling really bad. And, uh, you know, Courtney takes such good care of all of us. And uh, so, you know, keeping him hydrated. Anyway, a day goes by, and he turns to us, and he's crying. He says, I think I'm going to die. And he said it in such a way that just, you know, it stopped the whole room. There was just silence. There was this weird feeling. And so we ended up taking him to the ER, and it took the doctor one minute to say, we need to get him to surgery right away. His appendix had burst, and, uh, you know, you could be septic. You could get hurt. So anyway, so uh, when the doctor was explaining to us how severe the situation was, it was hard for me to control my emotions because I'm looking at my, you know, little son and thinking the whole time he, he can't bear this kind of pain. I would rather it be me than him. I don't want him to be hurting like this. And um, that's compassion. It's, it's when you view someone with pity and sympathy and Jesus, what's great about this is Jesus has compassion on us. God, God has demonstrated his compassion toward you and me. I just want to share a few verses to, to clarify it. Uh, Matthew 9, verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw them. Now, that's key, by the way, when he saw. That's, that's important for the definition of compassion. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 34, moved with compassion. This is after Jesus was interacting with an individual. He, uh, he touched their eyes. Immediately they could see, and they followed him. Mark 1, moved with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Uh, a man asked him, are you willing uh, to make me clean? He says, I am willing. He told him, be made clean. Well, after he was with him, saw him. The, the story of the good Samaritan having the compassion for a stranger but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, that's not an accident, that's not a filler, when he saw him, he had compassion. The story of the prodigal son, the, the son comes back from this wasteful life, uh, so the son got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. 
He saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Notice in all these examples that compassion came after he saw the person. The compassion comes after you see them. And the idea is compassion is how you view the person. So in Matthew 18, 27, the idea of it, step one is compassion. Compassion is how you view the person. Seeing the need and hurt and wanting to help. Seeing the person through the eyes of mercy. And so I think there's a slide maybe with, there it is, how you view the person. Um, so when you look at someone who has wronged you, when you view someone that has injured you, wronged you, not done what you wanted them to do, is your first thought criticism or compassion? That's the question. Do you hold them in contempt or do you have compassion for them? And so step one to forgiveness is compassion. Step two is release. In verse 27, then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. So step two is release. This word means to let go and set free. Let go and set free. So if compassion is how you view the person, then release is how you treat the person. Releasing them, setting them free, how you treat the person, that is, uh, that's the next step. Now, this is not just how you treat them in person, but also how you treat them in your mind, right? If there's someone that has wronged you, and, you know, we've all been there. You're around someone and they've wronged you and, you know, have you ever held a grudge? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever held a grudge against someone and you just thought what they did was so wrong, you don't, you don't want good for them, you're just upset with them, you just don't want to deal with them, you just want to avoid them, just get them out of my life. You're just holding a grudge against someone and you get around them and you're like, oh, hi, yeah, hey, and you just pretend and it's a porcelain facade, it's a facsimile, it's what we use the word for hypocrite. You just avoid truth, you avoid reality because deep down inside, you just don't want anything to do with them. In the Bible, how you treat someone in your mind and in your heart matters to God. That if you hate them in your heart, how you feel about them, God even considers if you hate someone in your heart, it's like committing murder. To him, it's like murder. It's like murder in the heart. So how you feel about someone and how you treat them is not just in person. If it's fake, it doesn't count. How you treat them matters in your heart and in person. The idea of release is to set them free from the clutches of your criticism and disdain. It's to set them free. You know, if you're, if you're in a courtroom and the judge says, he gavels, I don't have a gavel, but he like does a thing, the, the court will hold you in contempt. The court holds you in contempt. You could be in prison for that. You get fined at least. In our hearts, the way compassion works is if you hold them in contempt, if you don't release them, then you have not forgiven them. You cannot forgive someone and still hold within the offense and not have compassion toward them. And again, I know there's a lot of ideas on compassion. I just want to implore you, look at the scripture. You will never find an example where God forgives us or the right example where we forgive others where there's not compassion, release, and forgiveness. You won't find it. So release them. So step one is compassion. Step two is release. And the third step is our word for forgive. It's forgive. It means to release someone from legal or moral obligation or consequence. That's a technical term, but the idea is 
you forgive them, meaning they don't owe you any more debt. They're not indebted to you. Uh, And this is addressing debt. So forgiveness is addressing debt. So if compassion is how you view them, release is how you treat them, forgiveness is what you expect from them. Forgiveness is what you expect. And there's a formula for frustration that's really good. It's on the screen. Frustration equals expectation minus reality. Let me give you a personal example that I recently experienced. I go to Freddy's, and I, I, never, I don't do this very often, and I want a Reese's Pieces Concrete. I go up to the counter. I say, can I have a Reese's Pieces Concrete? And the person at the counter says, that was a special, and we don't offer that anymore. And so I had that dilemma, you know, I'm a pastor in town, I don't want to be on the news, I got to be careful what I say, like they, they know me, I've been here quite a lot, you know, I, you know, judge, you know, the debts, credits, I'm like judging this whole thing. What I wanted to do was, you know what, I want to talk to your manager, and I want to talk to the owner of Fred, where's Fred at? I want to talk to him because this is a travesty, and you guys should have this. He was on your signs just the other day, how do you not have it now? I was so upset. Frustration equals expectation minus reality. Now, if there's just a slight difference in what you're wanting and expecting and what happens, no big deal, right? The difference is that little, so little. But if there's a huge difference, like they no longer have Reese's Concretes, that's big-time frustration. And the idea of this kind of frustration where you want to hold a grudge, you want to be embittered against them, you don't want to forgive them, you want to be upset, you want things to be made right immediately, that kind of frustration leads to bitterness. Bitterness is when you hold on to that offense. And bitterness leads to anger and wrath and malice. And this is what we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 at the beginning of the service. These verses are meant to go together. This is God's inspired word to tell us this is what it looks like in Ephesians chapter 4. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Malice is like doing wrong to each other. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. God intends for these verses to be put together. The idea is if you're not forgiving, if you're holding on to bitterness, unforgiveness, it will lead to anger and wrath and slander and all these things. Instead, be kind and compassionate. Notice that compassion, how you view the person, and release how you treat the person is present here. Kindness is how you treat someone. This is how you're treating them. Release them. Compassion, how you view the person. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another. And how do you do it? Just as Christ also forgave you. So our example and motivation throughout the scripture is consistently these three steps of compassion, release, forgiveness. And our, mov- our motivation is ultimately found in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. How has God forgiven you? How has he forgiven you? Jesus is giving Peter and the other disciples an understanding of what forgiveness is and is not. He's correcting what it's not. And through the parable, he teaches them how to extend that forgiveness to others. It begins with how you view the person, compassion. Then it moves to how you treat the person, release and it ends with what you expect from them, forgiveness. What you expect is so important when it comes to forgiveness. 
Now, the rest of the parable is a warning against those who withhold forgiveness. So the rest of Jesus' parable is, if you don't want to learn from this and you don't want to forgive from the heart and have compassion, release, and forgive, this is what it looks like and this is what's going to happen. Verse 28, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. Now, it's not an accident, but look at how those three actions are the complete opposite of compassion, release, forgive. He choked him, which is not compassion or release. He grabbed him, right, not release, and said, pay what you owe. You owe me debt. You pay me what you owe. Jesus is intentionally giving these three steps in the opposite. If you don't forgive, this is what it looks like. Now, 100 denarii is only worth about 100 days' wages compared to 200,000 years of wages. So it's, it's clear that what this servant owes his fellow servant is nothing compared to what the servant owes the master. It's also clear in the parable that the master in the story represents God, and the parable ends with that clarification, which we'll get to. So, verse 28 highlights the truth that other people's offenses against us are nothing compared to our offenses against God. We withhold forgiveness when we forget or misunderstand how we've been forgiven. Now, I got called out on this. A few weeks ago, I preached, and I preached on, or maybe it was last week, I can't remember when this was, it was recent. I preached, and I share the story that I was molested as a little kid and how I had to forgive this person. And then I came to the realization theologically that my sin against God is worse than their sin against me. And buddy, when I preached that to you guys, your faces just, you just, you just all kind of lit up. But I thought, you know, that happens. That happens all the time. No big deal. All right. You, you guys look shocked. Well, I got some feedback about that. People in the church wanting to know, what do you mean that you're, your sins against God is worse than this person's sins against you. That doesn't make any sense. I said, listen, I tried to explain it, but let me re-explain it. Okay, the wages of sin is death. My sin against God earns, deserves death. It's not because I'm just some horrible, really bad person that just did so many bad things. It's because I'm a sinner and I sinned against God, and that's what God says my sin deserves. It deserves death. My fellow human being that has sinned against God, maybe it's Hitler. His sin deserves death. Now, just think about it for a moment. His sin deserves the same consequence that my sin deserves. I deserve exactly what he deserves. I have earned exactly what he earns. And in the scripture, it's clear that our sins, the wages of sin is death. In James, James, Jesus' half-brother, he makes it very clear. If you have broken even one command one law you have broken the in the entire law you are a lawbreaker and you are deserving of god's punishment it's it's not too much that your your sin deserves death if you think that your sin that someone else's sin against you is worse than your sin against god what you're saying whether you want to argue about it or not is when jesus was dying on the cross suffering bleeding that your sin really didn't deserve that? Like your sin wasn't that bad? He'd, if Jesus had to come and die for your sin, he would have maybe got spanked a few times and then went back to heaven. 
What you're saying is your sin doesn't deserve the full penalty of sin because either your sin earns the same consequence or it doesn't. You can't have it both ways. It deserves the same eternal spiritual punishment. And so when I look at others and I say, God, I, I deserve exactly what they deserve, yet by your grace and mercy, I will be forgiven of my unrighteousness and the righteousness that I gain is gonna be through Jesus' death, life, death, burial, and resurrection. That is the only righteousness that I have gained between me and God. And the good works that I do, because I know there's debate on this, even the good works that I was called to do, Ephesians chapter two, that I was created to do, even those works when I get to heaven, I'm gonna lay those treasures that pass through the fire, I'm gonna lay them at Jesus' feet. Why? Why do I give it back to him? Am I giving him something that he didn't deserve or earn? Am I giving him something extra? Does he have more glory if I'm there? No, the whole point is I didn't really do any of these. You did it. You did this through me. You made this possible. I would be dead and burning in hell if it weren't for you. These good works belong to your work in my life. If it wasn't for your power, I'd have none. If it wasn't your forgiveness, I'd have none. If it wasn't for your work, I would have none. So, you know, when someone preaches to you that your sins against God are as bad as anyone's sins against you, it, it, it could not be more clear in this parable. This servant owed the other servant nothing compared to what the servant owed the master, and that is a clear megaphone call to you, which God loves you and wants to teach you. You owed God a debt you could never repay in 200,000 years. And anything that anyone else does to you, that's nothing compared to how much you've been forgiven. It's nothing. It's like you can't even compare it. That's the point. Ephesians 4, verse 32. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. When we disregard how God has forgiven us, we demand immediate justice and repayment even if it's severe and it costs the other person everything. On a, on a light note to illustrate this, um, I know a guy that has children and sometimes when his children do something bad, they go to his dad and like, I'm sorry, forgive me. And the dad just wants to forgive them every time. Okay, I, I love you, I forgive you. But when that same kid's sibling does something wrong against them, it's a different story. They do something wrong, please forgive me, and the dad forgives them. But then their sibling does something wrong, and the kid's like, this person did this against me. My brother, my sister, they did this. Uh, take all their toys, ground them for a year, burn their house, you know, like the whole day, like I, off with their head. That's, that's the kind of emotion, off with their head. And I've learned that is a really good teaching point for you parents. That is such a great teaching point. You can go to your kid and say, you know how you wanted mercy, you desired mercy. You know when you did this thing wrong and you came to me in tears and you said, will you please forgive me, and I forgave you? You know how that felt? You know how wonderful that was when you received mercy? God's, God's kingdom is where he will change your heart so that when your sibling does something wrong against you, you want forgiveness for them just like you want forgiveness for yourself. You show them the kind of mercy that God shows you. That's his kingdom. That's his design. That's his plan.
Forgive others just as God has forgiven you. And when you really think about how God has forgiven you, how could you not? How could you not look at your fellow brother, sister, wife, kids, neighbor, coworker, human being? How could you not look at them and say, God, please forgive them. Please forgive them. Best thing in my life was when you forgave me of my horrible sins. I should have died. I should have stayed lost. I should have gone to hell. I, I did not love you. I did not search after you, seek after you. I was a lost cause if there ever was one. And you intervened in my life to make your gospel so clear to me of who I was and who you were and what you did and who you are and heaven and hell. You made that so clear to me just so you could adopt me as your child and treat me as if I were Jesus that makes no sense to me. And all he's asking is, now treat other people that way. And he's done it. And don't ever think for a second that when you show compassion and mercy towards someone else that you're doing something harder than what God has done for you. It was not harder for you to forgive that abuser than it was for God to forgive you. Our sins, our sins are horrible. That's the bad news. The good news is, God's love is amazing, and he has already done it. He sent his son to the world to be a sacrifice on your behalf, to take away your sins, to forgive you of all your unrighteousness, and then to give you his righteousness, meaning you now get to enter the new heavens and the new earth totally forgiven, totally clean, undeservedly, unearned. You get to be with him as his child forever, inheriting the blessings that Jesus won for you and for me. So forgive as, as you've been forgiven. And yet the, the unforgiving serv servant did the very opposite. Notice in verse 28, he grabbed him, started choking him and said, and said, pay what you owe. Notice those three words are the complete opposite. Grabbing, choking, demanding for immediate repayment. It's the complete opposite of compassion, release, and forgiveness. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. He wasn't willing, verse 30. Forgiveness is a choice. It is a choice. And you have to be willing to look at them with compassion, to treat them the way you've been treated, to release them and to forgive them. It, it is a choice, but it's, it's all of those. It's all three of those. It's a decision of the will, which means... Withholding forgiveness is a choice, and it's the wrong choice. When we choose not to forgive, we are sinning and making the wrong choice. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. The words deeply distressed means incredibly grieved. It's two different words in the original language. Incredibly grieved, that word for distress. They were so grieved, right? They were not mandatory reporters, Right? They didn't have to go say something. And, and here's the point that Jesus is making. When you see someone being unforgiving, how does it make you feel? Do you think, ah, oh, that's what God's like? Ah, oh, that's the way it should be. Or does it grieve you? Does it grieve you when someone else is unforgiving? And now switch it. Let this parable be like a mirror in your life reflecting your actions when you are unforgiving to someone else, how does that look? 
Is that what God wants for you? Is that what God wants for your marriage? Is that what God wants for your life? How does that look when you're being unforgiving? When we witness unforgiveness, it bothers us and it should. Verse 32, then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now this, this is clear and, and bold. Unforgiveness after we've been forgiven is considered evil to God. Let that set for a moment. Unforgiveness after we've been forgiven is considered wicked and evil and sinful in God's eyes. The point is, forgiveness is voluntary. It's voluntary meaning you choose whether you forgive or not. Forgiveness is voluntary, but it's not optional. It's not a choice that you can make like, well, I can either forgive or not forgive, and you know, I'll, I guess I'll see in heaven whether it was right or wrong. No, you know now, it's wrong. It is wrong to withhold forgiveness. Forgiveness is voluntary, but it's not optional. God's mercy toward us requires that we are merciful toward others. And verse 34, and because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Until, until he could pay back everything. Forgiveness is not just setting the other person free, it does set you free. You've probably heard that before. Forgiveness, unforgiveness just holds you captive. And here's how I'm taking it from a biblical standpoint. Unforgiveness, according to this parable, is a heavy burden, a silent tax that leaves you emotionally impoverished and angry, costing you happiness and peace. Unforgiveness is this, you can't see it, but it will weigh you down and keep you captive for as long as you hold on to it. If you hold on to an offense, that offense will hold on to you twice as hard. And then Jesus just goes an extra step, just so people don't miss it, just so you don't think the parable is about something else or someone else. Verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you He's making it so clear, all of you individually. This, this is not a general statement. This is for every single individual. This is for everyone in this room. Unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your, from your, from your heart. You have to choose to forgive them, and it has to be real. It can't be fake. That's why it begins with compassion, how you view them, release how you treat them, and then on to forgiveness, what you expect from them. It has to include all of that. Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your offenses. What a statement. If you don't have forgiveness in your heart, you won't have forgiveness in heaven. Could Jesus be any more clear about understanding forgiveness and how we ought to forgive? We need to stand out in the world. If we say that we reflect the image of God and we are Christians, we represent Jesus, but yet we represent uh, what it means to hold on to a grudge, hold on to a, an offense, we don't forgive, which version do you think people will believe? 
What do you think your kids will think if you don't forgive one another? What do you think your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow friends, your family, what will they think if you reflect unforgiveness? They're not going to see the image of God, which is what we're created to reflect. We were made in His image to reflect His image. And holding a grudge and unforgiveness is the opposite. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, we have to be a forgiving people. That's what it means to be Jesus' church. We are His church. Now let's go be the church. Grace, we are sent. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your parables, your truth, your teaching. Uh, we pray that you would make us a people of the truth of your, of your Bible that is your ins inspired and errant word that we can look to, to learn. I pray that you would teach us forgiveness from this parable, from your teaching, from the rest of uh, Scripture. Help us not to grab on and choke and demand repayment. Help us to be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another, letting people go, setting them free, allowing your work to, to take place in our heart. We know that you have forgiven us, and you have forgiven us a debt that we could never pay, an impossible debt. If I sold everything I had, if everything I had was taken away, it couldn't pay my salvation. So Jesus, we thank you for your salvation that you paid for, you bought, and you offered to us. Make us more like you. Help us to forgive because you've forgiven us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.